Well, if you'd please turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. We are in chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 22 in Acts 4. And that's found on page 911 and 912 if you're using the Pew Bible. And this is the same scene that we've been looking at for the last three sermons. Remember Peter and John, they went up to the temple at 3 o'clock in the afternoon in order to pray. And as they're entering the temple, they encounter a disabled man, a man who had been lame from birth. And the man here is begging. He is asking for alms. And Peter and John stop. They see the man. They look directly at the man. And Peter says to him, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. And then he says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the text tells us that the lame man went walking and leaping and praising God. And this healing happened in the temple in front of a large crowd. And this man had been disabled for 40 years. And he was known to the people in the temple. And now they see he is made whole. Now they see him walking and leaping and praising God. So needless to say, this was a miraculous healing. And this miraculous healing got the attention of the crowds. They wanted to know how this man was healed. They wanted to know what this meant. And then in chapter 3, verse 11, to the end of chapter 3, Peter tells them what it means. He gives them an explanation of what this healing meant and how it happened. And he said it's because of Jesus. Jesus is the reason. Jesus is the answer for this healing. And then Peter boldly proclaims the gospel. He convicts the people there. He convicts them of their sin. He calls them to repent. He calls them to trust in Jesus for, for salvation. And we looked at two sermons, how Jesus is, or Peter's uh, sermon here is a, is a model for us on how we can witness for Jesus. Well, today what we're going to see is the consequences of Peter and John's bold witness. See, their witness got the attention not only of the crowds, but also of the powerful men in Jerusalem. And these powerful men, they were not happy, and they put Peter and John, this put them in real danger. So today what we're going to do is we're going to look and see how Peter and John react to this danger. Will they fold? Will they backpedal? Will they compromise? Will they change their story? Or will they stand their ground and speak the truth to those in power? So Acts chapter 4, verses 1 to 22. Hear now the word of the Lord. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for this word. Thank you for this testimony. I pray, Lord, that you will speak through me. Give me your words. I pray, Father, you will open our ears to hear from you. And Lord, I pray that these words will come down. They, they, will, they will speak to us as we prayed, Lord, that they will speak and they will convict us and they will change us and they will draw us closer to Christ and that they will conform us more into his image. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's easy for us as we're reading through Scripture, it's easy for us to really to miss the, the grave danger that Peter and John face in this passage. And, and I think it's because we really don't understand who exactly they're going up against. It's easy in Scripture for, for all these types of people to run together. We kind of know they're the bad guys. They're the guys who oppose God. But we don't really know who they are. Verse 1 tells us that as Peter and John were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. So who are these people? The priests, the captain, the Sadducees. Well, the priests, these were the men who ran the temple. They were the ones who offered the sacrifices. They were the religious leaders of the people. So the, the temple was their domain. They were the ones who were in charge of the temple. And remember, the temple is where this miracle, this healing took place. This is where Peter and John were, were witnessing about Jesus. Now, the captain of the temple, he was in, in charge of the temple guard. And the temple guard, they were, they were basically the physical muscle of the priests. They were like the temple police. And really, other than the Roman soldiers who were also in Jerusalem, the temple guard was really the most formidable physical force for keeping the people in line. This was the same group that, if you remember, in the Gospels arrested Jesus. So that's the, the captain of the temple. The Sadducees, the Sadducees, they were the, arist the, the aristocracy of the day. They were the ones with the political clout. It was the Sadducees, it was from this class that the, the high priest came and was selected. And they were the ones who were empowered by the Romans really to handle all the religious and the civil uh, matters of the people. And their main job was to keep the peace. That's really what the Romans wanted. The Romans didn't really care about the religion. Their, the Romans didn't care about justice. All they wanted is for the people to be under control. They, they wanted to keep the people docile. They didn't want them to, to rise up. And the Sadducees, they knew this. And this was the reason if they wanted to keep their job, they had to keep the peace. This was their only requirement. Now, verse 2 tells us that these three groups were coming against Peter and John, and it says that they were greatly annoyed. So why were they annoyed? They were annoyed because they, 
Peter and John were teaching about Jesus. They were proclaiming that Jesus raised, was rose, risen from the dead. And you got to remember, this group that, that gathered together, this was the same group that came against Jesus, the same group that put Jesus to death. And why did they put Jesus to death? Because they feared Jesus. They feared that Jesus would inspire the crowds to rebel against Rome. The people there, they didn't really like the Romans. They didn't want to be subjugated to the Romans. And they were looking for a leader who, they, who would rise them up to go against the Romans. And this, these groups that opposed Peter and John, they feared that Jesus would be that leader who would inspire this insurrection. And that they had hoped by, by, by going after the leader, going after Jesus, and, and by the brutal crucifixion of Jesus, that that would serve as an example. That would scatter his, his followers. They would abandon their cause. They would be in fear. So that's what they had hoped. And it was only two months earlier. Now they see Peter and John. Peter and John are in the temple, boldly proclaiming about Jesus. And declaring that Jesus was not still dead. Jesus died but was risen from the dead. And that this is, they were said not only that he was risen from the dead, it was God. The God that they were worshiping in this temple were the ones who, who, the one who raised him. And this was making these powerful people in the temple very nervous. And they figured they had to squash this movement very quickly. Squash any talk about a resurrected Jesus quickly and decisively lest it comes to the attention of the Romans. And then the Romans get rid of the Sadducees and those in power and find others who can take care of this, this, this group. See, the Romans were brutal. And the, if the Sadducees and the priests couldn't control the people, the Romans would find someone who could. And we know from history that that's exactly what they did. In 70 AD, the Romans came in and they completely destroyed Jerusalem. So these leaders, they certainly did not want any discussion about a resurrection. Now, the Sadducees themselves, they didn't even believe in the resurrection. So the Sadducees, they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in anything that was supernatural. The, the Sadducees, they were political. They were practical. They were focused on this world, on what they can see. And what they could see was the Romans. The Romans were in charge. That was their reality. And they didn't want anyone getting any ideas about a Messiah or a resurrected Messiah. Anything that would distract them from what the reality that they saw. Anything that could cause trouble and get them in trouble with Rome. So what is the first thing that these powerful people do? Well, the first thing they do is they show their power. They make it clear that they are in control to, to Peter and John. And they use their power to arrest Peter and John. They make them spend the night in jail. And this is clearly meant to intimidate them. It is, it is clearly meant to get them to really think. Spend a night in jail and think about what you're going to say, what you're going to teach the next day. And there's really no reason they needed to be arrested. Peter and John, they weren't dangerous criminals. They were worshiping. And these leaders, they could have spoken to them at this time. It really wasn't that late in the evening. Remember, they came at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So how much longer could it have been? Maybe two or three hours afterwards? So they had plenty of time. But they didn't do that. They, they didn't do that. They wanted to, to, to show that they were in charge. They wanted to intimidate them. They thought that spending a night in jail would cool them off and, and maybe scare away the crowds. So they came and they arrest the leaders, and they were hoping that the crowds would disperse. But that's not what they see. That's not what they see. In fact, this, this plan seems to have backfired. Rather than scaring away the crowds, look at what happens in verse 4. It says, Many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Man, it's amazing to think God is clearly acting here. 5,000. And we don't know how much time passed since Pentecost, but it's probably only a few days. 
And at Pentecost, remember before Pentecost, there were 120 believers. That's all there were. Then at Pentecost, 3,000 came. So up at 2,100 people. Now we're talking about 5,000. And it's 5,000 men. So we don't know. There could be more women and, and children. But what this tells us is growth is huge. And God is working contrary to human wisdom. See, persecution, it, it always purifies the church. It grows the true number of believers. There may be false believers. It will weed them out. But the true believers, when persecution comes, it grows. There's a saying, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And that is definitely true. We see that in history as well as in Scripture. So the next day, these men come and they meet. the, the, the rulers uh, meet together with the elders. And the elders here that, that are mentioned, this is the Sanhedrin. And this is the same group that convicted Jesus. In addition, we have mentioned to the, to the elders, we have mentioned the scribes. So the scribes, these were the experts in the Torah, experts in the law. Think of these as the legal scholars. They knew everything about the, the, about the Old Testament, or, or so they thought. And if that wasn't enough, look at verse 6. It says, Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. So who are these men? Well, Annas, he was the high priest. Caiaphas. Caiaphas was Annas' son-in-law. He was also a high priest. And John and Alexander, these were men who would serve as high priests after Caiaphas. So one of, or both of these men may have already been in the role of high priest when the book of Acts was actually written. So the original audience would have recognized these names. They would have been known as the most powerful religious leaders at the time. And all, as you notice, these men are all of the same family. So Peter and John were not just facing one high priest, you know, the highest religious figure of the time. That, that would have been bad enough. They were actually facing this high priestly dynasty. All of them were arrayed against them. And it's easy for us to, to miss the scene that Luke intentionally paints for us. We may think that Peter's speech that we read here is just a repeat of what he said in chapter 3 before the people. But we've got to understand that the audience is vastly different, significantly different. And what Luke is showing us here is that all of the most powerful people in Jerusalem, all of the most powerful people in the Jewish society, all of them were arrayed against Peter and John. It's like, say, say one of us was arrested for witnessing, sharing the gospel, and we're taken to jail, and we're facing then the mayor, and the, the police chief, and the sheriff, and, and the judges, and the lawyers, and then the, all the business leaders of Albany, and then all the religious leaders of Albany, all of them standing there and saying, what you're doing is wrong. That's sort of what it looks like for them. And not only are they telling them they're wrong, they're putting very real and tangible pressure on them to rethink what they're saying. Well, this is the situation that Peter and John are facing. They're not just speaking to the average person in the temple. They're not just speaking to their neighbors. They're not just speaking to their, their equals. They're speaking to the most powerful people that they know. And they're testifying to people that who could take away their livelihood, who can put them in prison, who can physically beat them, who can maybe even kill them. And these were the people Peter and John are facing here. And these are the people, this is not an empty threat. These are actually the same people who put Jesus to death. It was obviously that they would not like what Peter had earlier said to the crowds. So from a human perspective, while they're sitting in jail that night, Peter and John are thinking, the way that we could, the only way we can escape this situation with the least punishment, now they were going to face some punishment, but the least punishment would be for them to recant, for them to walk back what they would say, for them to, to say something that would have been more acceptable to these leaders. So they're, they're brought out of jail and they're brought before the leaders. Then verse 7, they get the question. And the question comes to them, 
By what power, or by what name did you do this? So there's the question. They're standing there. Now they have to answer. Now we've got to understand, this is not a question to get information. The, the, these leaders, they really didn't care how Peter and John did this. And, and Peter already answered. He already said by what name they did this. What they're doing is they're intimidating them. They want them to say the right thing. And they expected that after spending the, the night in jail, Peter and John, seeing these overwhelming forces arrayed against them, that they would recant what they previously said. Now, I want you just to think about it for a moment. Think about how you would react. I want to think about how I would react if I was in a similar situation. And I can honestly say, I don't know how I would react. Would I be tempted to, to change my story if I were sitting there? I mean, I've never faced that type of pressure. I doubt that any of us here has faced that type of pressure that they were under, that type of pressure against them. But I have faced people who are not, who are not believers, people who thought my faith was absurd, my faith was ignorant, people who may not have had the ability to physically hurt me, but people who I want to, to like me, people who could have laughed at me, people I wanted to impress, maybe, uh, maybe people who were in positions to help my career, people who I didn't want to alienate. And in those situations, I can sad to say, I found that I didn't recant what I said, but I found it easy to be quiet. I found it easy to keep my mouth shut, to, to, to not say what I really truth and, and just, just let things slide. So I don't know how I would react in those situations. But I think it helps to realize Peter and John, they weren't supermen. They weren't. They were weak. They were sinful. They were just like me, just like you. You remember when the night Jesus was crucified? You remember how Peter acted? Peter wasn't very brave then. Remember Peter denied Jesus three times. He denied that he even knew Jesus. He was, Peter was afraid of, of a servant girl. Now Peter's not facing a helpful servant girl. Now Peter is facing the most powerful men in their culture. But I think Peter on his own, I think Peter on his own would respond the same way that I would respond, the same way you would respond, the same way he responded to that servant girl. But here's the amazing thing. Peter was not on his own. Peter was not on his own. We are not on our own. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 gives us the reason for Peter's ability to speak truth to power. And, and verse 8 provides the hope that we have, provides our hope for how we can speak truth to power if we find ourselves in a similar situation. Look at the beginning of verse 8. It says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit. See, this is a fulfillment of the promise that Jesus gave in Matthew 10 that we heard in our gospel reading. Jesus said, he promised, he said, you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. So he was given to them by the Holy Spirit in that hour. And I'm sure, I'm sure Peter had no idea what he was going to say. Peter was in that jail, said, I have no idea what I am going to say. And the Holy Spirit gave him the words. And my friends, this is the same promise given to us. Given to us when we witness about Jesus. Because we're going to wonder, what am I going to say? I don't know what to say. We're going to be before people. And we're going to say, I don't know. But the Holy Spirit will give us the words. And people aren't going to like what we have to say. We will face opposition. And this is difficult. I don't know about you, but I want people to like me. I want everyone to love me. And there's, a, there's going to be a, a temptation a temptation to compromise the message, a temptation to tell people what they want to hear. 
And just like Peter and John, I think we're tempted to tell these powerful men what they wanted to hear. But my friends, if we belong to Jesus, then we are filled. The scripture tells us we are filled with the Holy Spirit. And if we're filled with the Holy Spirit, then he, the Holy Spirit, will give us the words to say when the time comes. He will give us the confidence. He will give us the boldness to speak truth to power. So how does Peter respond? Well, the first thing we see him do in verse 9 is that he calls out the hypocrisy. He, he basically says, what do we do wrong? Why, why are we being examined? Why were we put into jail? And he says, is it for a good deed? Is it for doing this good deed? Is it for healing this crippled man? See, Peter is bringing the focus back on the miracle, back on what God had done. Everyone acknowledges this miracle was a good thing. And everyone recognized that this miracle was a supernatural act. And this is where Peter doesn't pull any punches. In verse 10, Peter unequivocally declares that the man was healed by the power of Jesus. And not only does Peter declare that the man was healed by the power of Jesus, Peter then, then turns the tables on his accusers here. In verse 10, he says, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. You see what Peter's doing here? He, he's, he's setting up a contrast here. He's saying, you, you powerful leaders, all you who, who, are, who, are, who are against me, you are opposed to God himself. And this opposition is based on Jesus. You crucified him. God raised him up. You are opposed to God. And you see where the focal point is? The focal point is Jesus. You reject Jesus, you reject God. See, our culture loves a generic God. You'll talk, people will talk about God all the time. Uh, and, and they talk about God in these vague terms. But Scripture says the only way we can approach God is through Jesus. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have God. And it's not a, a generic, sanitized, defanged Jesus who, who loves everyone and never gets angry and has no standards. No, it's the Jesus of the Bible. Jesus as he is described in Scripture. This is the only Jesus who can save. So Peter continues to demonstrate how they're opposing God in verse 11. And here he quotes the psalm, Psalm 118, verse 22. And he says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And this, this is probably a well-known verse because this, this verse is actually quoted six times in the New Testament. And it's always referring to Jesus. Jesus himself quoted this verse referring to himself. Now the Jewish leaders opposing Peter and John, they interpreted this verse as, as referring to Israel. They would have seen themselves as the cornerstone. But here Peter's bursting your bubble. He's using their own scripture to show that they have missed the boat, that they are opposed to God's anointed one. They are opposed to the Christ. They were not the stone, but rather they're the wicked builders. They're the wicked builders that rejected Christ and thus are stumbling over him. All who reject Christ will stumble over him. See, these leaders were deceived, and these leaders needed to know the truth. They needed to know the truth about Jesus, and this was John and Peter's commission. They were, they were called to proclaim the truth about Jesus. My friend, this is our commission. This is our job. Just like Peter and John, we are to proclaim the truth about Jesus. And just like Peter and John, we will face opposition from those who are powerful by the world's standards. But we still proclaim the truth. We proclaim the truth by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who resides within everyone who is a believer. 
And Peter does not hold back, regardless of the opposition, regardless of the personal danger, regardless of the consequences. My friends, neither can we. Neither can we. Verse 12, we come to the zenith of this passage. This, I think, is the core message of this passage. And notice Peter's clear, unambiguous, unapologetic proclamation of God's truth. There's no waffling here. There's no hemming and hawing. There's no softening it with qualifications. There's no trying to repackage it to be more positive, something that that would be more seeker-sensitive that they may accept. No, he just gives them the unvarnished truth that each one of these powerful men need to hear. This is the unvarnished truth that every single person who's ever lived needs to hear. And this is the truth that we, too, must be equally bold to declare. Verse 12 says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And that is the name of Jesus. My friends, Jesus is the only way. Jesus is the only way for salvation. There is no other name by which we may be saved. It is only in Jesus. My question is, do we believe this? Do we truly believe this? You know, people are passionate about certain things that they believe. You may meet people who are passionate about exercise, and when they come talk to you, they say, you need to exercise. Everyone needs to exercise. Or passionate about health. I remember I had a friend who, 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 would, who, who, who was against any sugar. He thought sugar was the most evil thing. And everyone he talked to, he would say, stay away from sugar. Or it could be about cancer screenings. You know, I was talking to my, my sister-in-law who, who uh, is, just had cancer. He says, everyone should be, have cancer screenings. This is what saved me. Or, or retirement savings. You know, people are, are saying that we should be wise and, and, and be saving for retirement. So people are going to always tell you things that they believe in. And those are important things to hear. It's important to get cancer screenings. It's important to exercise. It's important to eat healthy. It's important to save for retirement. But it's even more important to trust Jesus. And do we believe this? Do we tell people about this? Do we really believe it? In verse 13, we see the reaction. The reaction of those in power to Peter's testimony. And they're, they're astonished at what Peter just said. It makes no sense to them. They're baffled by the words of these men. And they, they comment that, that Peter and John are uneducated. And what they mean, it's not that Peter and John are, are illiterate, that they can't read. No, they're uneducated in religious training. They didn't go to all the, the fancy religious um, training that these, these religious leaders had. They were not pedigreed. They were not, uh, had the right resume to be a leader. So where did their authority come from? That's, the, that's what's baffling. Where did their authority come from? Where did they get their power? Well, the answer was evident to all of them. As we see in verse 13, tells us. It says they recognized that they had been with Jesus. They had been with Jesus. Jesus was the source of their power. They didn't need all the fancy education. They didn't need all the fancy training. They had Jesus. They knew Jesus. My friends, we'll face the same questions. People will wonder, you know, we'll wonder, you know, where, where's my qualifications? You know, I, I didn't go to seminary. I, I, didn't, I didn't do all this fancy training. There, there are people who, who know Greek and Hebrew, who know all this fancy stuff, and I don't know this. And, and uh, can I speak to them? Can I speak to them truth and power? I don't have their resume. I don't have their training. Who am I? How can I speak truth to power? It comes from Jesus. If we know Jesus, if we spend time with Jesus, then we have that power. So the power wasn't native to Peter and John. And the power is not native to us. The power comes solely through Jesus and our relationship with Jesus and our spending time with Jesus. Verses 14 through 18, this really reveals the hypocrisy of the leaders opposing Peter and John. Let's take a look at these verses. 
14 through 18, it says, But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that note, a notable sign had been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak and teach at all in the name of Jesus. See, these leaders knew the truth. They knew the truth. They, they knew that a notable sign had been performed. They knew a miracle was performed. They, they, they had no, it was evident to all the inhabitants. And this was a sign that, that validated their testimony. There was no dispute. Now, did this fact cause the leaders to, to rethink their opposition to Jesus? Did they rethink their opposition to his followers? Did it cause them to seek the truth, to consider the claims of Jesus? In other words, were these guys noble? Were they really seeking to know the truth? Were these men like the noble Gamaliel? We'll read about Gamaliel in chapter 5. See, Gamaliel was a, was a Jewish leader, one of the most respected Jewish leaders. And he was not a follower of Jesus. But he wanted to follow God. He wanted to seek the truth. So he was open. He was an honest seeker. And again, we'll look at him in a few weeks when we get to chapter 5. But these men were not. They knew the truth. and They closed their eyes to the truth. They knew what they were doing. They could not claim ignorance. For them, this was not an honest mistake. They refused to acknowledge what was plain to them. They didn't like the truth. They didn't like where it led, so they ignored the truth. They didn't really care about truth. They were pragmatic. They decided that the best way to preserve their power, the best way to appease the Romans, was to get rid of Jesus and to get rid of his followers. And they wouldn't let any fact to the contrary, even facts that they agreed with and acknowledged, any fact to stand in the way. And I think this is really a warning to us, a warning of the dangers of pragmatism. See, there's no righteous way to do an unrighteous act. Pragmatism corrupts. Pragmatism blinds us to the truth. And we must watch because this is our temptation. This will be our temptation as well. And for the Christian, for the Christian, our biggest fear should not be persecution. No, we should expect that. In fact, Scripture tells us this. We should be concerned if we don't experience any persecution, we don't experience any opposition. We should be concerned if everyone seems to love us. No, our biggest fear is not persecution. Our biggest fear is compromise. See, compromise comes from pragmatism. It comes when our first concern is, is serving ourselves rather than serving God. But Peter and John, Peter and John must be faithful to this calling, regardless of the cost of themselves. They still needed to speak the truth, the power. Verses 19 and 20, Peter and John answered them, said, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And Peter here continues to highlight their hypocrisy, point blank. He says, do we listen to you or do we listen to God? And Peter continues to show this contrast. Listening to you is, a po is an opposition to listening to God. And he's showing them that they are on the wrong side of God. He's showing that they are not in a safe place. And this just shows that God is not real to these powerful men. God was not real to them. To them, it was just a job. It was just a, a means of, of power. They were functional atheists. It was all a game to them. They may have been studying the Scripture, but they didn't believe the Scripture. All, for them, it was all about their power and all about their privilege. They certainly don't believe it. 
And we've got to be on guard for this. Do we believe, do we believe this book? Are we, are we just coming in here because it's what nice people do on Sundays? Or are there some people who, who actually study this, people who are in graduate school, got PhDs and study this, but don't believe it. It's just, it's just a, a means to get respect. And we have to be very careful. We have to be careful because there will be times when pressure will come to us. And if it's just a game, if it's not real, when the pressure comes, we will fold. We will give in. It will be difficult to stand firm when the powerful come against us. But if we truly believe, if we truly believe, no matter how much pressure we face, we will answer as Peter and John did in verse 20. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. If we have seen and heard Christ, we cannot but speak of him. We'll be compelled, compelled by Christ to witness for him. And do we feel this compulsion? Do we feel this compulsion? Or is it easy for us to compromise? Is it easy for us to justify what we do? Easy for us to be pragmatic? Well, I think as a church, not just Northgate, but as, as the global church, we faced this question just three years ago when there was much pressure on us not to worship because of COVID. And thankfully here in, G in Georgia, we didn't face the, the legal restrictions that, some, that others had, but there were, certainly, there were certainly social pressures not to meet. But there were brothers and sisters in other places like California or Canada that faced fines and even imprisonment to be faithful to Jesus. And I think we would be foolish to think that this could not happen again. My friends, are we ready? Are we ready if this happens again? How will we respond when we're told by those in power that we cannot do what Christ commands or that we must do what Christ forbids? And there will be pressure to do that. Will we stand firm or will we be pragmatic? Our actions will reveal whether we truly believe or not. Verse 21 says, And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. And here we see where the true power lies. These leaders wanted to punish them further, but they were unable to. They were unable to because God is sovereign. God would not allow them to be further punished. The leaders were afraid of the people. See, the people, they saw the miracles. They believed. They were praising God. And the leaders knew if they punished Peter and John, they would have had a riot on their hands. And that was the very last thing that they wanted. So they had to let them go, even though they didn't want to let them go. Remember from the Gospels, that, that was the same problem that these same leaders had with arresting Jesus. See, Jesus was so popular with the people that if they attempted to, to arrest Jesus out in the open during the day, they would have had a riot. So they needed, that's why they needed Judas. Judas had to betray Jesus and tell the temple guard, same temple guard that opposing Peter and John, let them know where Jesus was staying at night. So under the cover of darkness, the temple guards can go and arrest Jesus so it would not cause a riot. But don't miss this fact. Don't miss this fact. We may be in a situation to speak truth to those who, from a human perspective, have power. Much, much more power than we have. But any power they have is given to them by God. Is given to them by God. And is used by God for his purposes. So we don't have to fear. We don't have to fear when we're in a situation. God is sovereign. And God will either deliver us from the situation, like he did for Peter and John here, or he'll give us the sustaining grace to endure whatever persecution may face. Or he may take us home, as he did with the martyrs. Bring us into the presence. And this is, this is really, into his presence, this is really our ultimate blessing. But whichever outcome that he ordains for us, whether to, to allow, allow us to escape it, to allow us to endorse, or to bring us home to glory, 
whatever one, we can be confident. We can confident that he will use this trial and this persecution for his glory and for our good. So this will give us courage. This will give us confidence in whatever, whatever trial, whatever persecution that may result of our witnessing truth to, to power. The last verse that we see in, in this section, verse 22 says, For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. And this verse, I think, combined what we learned in chapter 3, that this man was lame from birth. This tells us how long this man had endured this disability. And I think it gives credibility. This is not a, 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 a you know, the man wasn't just lame for a week. It wasn't something that would have healed on its own. This man had it for his entire life, for 40 years. So it shows us that, that this is a really miraculous healing. But I think there's also symbolic meaning here to this that he's 40 years old. Remember in Scripture, number 40 is used often. And it's symbolic for a period of a trial, a period of suffering, a period of judgment. We see that the 40 years the Israelites wandered in the wilderness, the, the 40 days of rain during Noah's flood, the 40 days that Jesus was in the wilderness fasting and being tempted by the devil. So I think the fact that this man was 40 years old and, and was healed, when he was healed and when he was saved, I think this indicates that the trial, the time of trial, the time of judgment, the, the, the time of testing is over. It's saying that God is moving. God is moving now, and the time of waiting has ended and has been replaced with a time of grace. And my friends, this is the time we are in now. We are in the time of grace. And this is why it is so important for us, so important for us to witness, because now the, the door of salvation is open to all who come to Christ. But there will be a time when this door will be closed, and the, and the fate of those rejecting God and his grace will be eternally lost. So as I close, I just want to give us three brief applications that kind of tie all this together. And the first thing is, we must understand that we will face opposition from the world. The powerful of the world oppose God, and so they will oppose us. And they oppose us because they want to be God. They oppose God because they want to be God. And they will seek to silence our witness. And they will use threats. They will use intimidation to silence us. And when this happens, not if, but when this happens, we must recognize that this is not unexpected. It is not because we did anything wrong. It's not happening because we were unfaithful. Rather, it's happening because we are being faithful. And we look to God's word. We look to God's word for, for comfort. We trust that God is sovereign. And we are eternally secure in the grip of his grace. And we know whatever he ordains is right and will lead to our good and his glory. That's our first application. Our second application is we must speak truth to power. And this will be scary. This will be uncomfortable. But we really have no choice. The truth compels us to speak. Pragmatism is not an option. Silence is not an option. And we don't need to worry about that time. The Holy Spirit will provide for us the words. He will give us the courage. He will give us the boldness that he requires at that time. That's our second application. Our third application is when we speak truth to power, we must be clear. We must be unequivocal. We must be unapologetic. This is not the time to be wishy-washy. This is not the time to use double speak. This is not the time to be vague. And the only way that we can do this is by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's by because of Jesus. He alone is the answer. It's because of Jesus, not because of us. It's all because of him. We proclaim not ourselves, we proclaim Christ. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. May we have the courage to boldly proclaim this truth. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, I do pray that you will give us the courage, the courage to proclaim the truth that we hear here, to give us boldness. And Father, give us the confidence that the Holy Spirit, he will be with us and he will speak through us when you call us to do this. We pray this in Jesus' name for his glory.